That's right, dear listeners, another Flesh episode of The Dark Zone. This is done the evening in which Worlds and Paraguay's finished up. We know the podium. We know who the top 7 to 10 are going to be. We're joined by Craig Cook of AR Live Coverage, Jason Magnus of Bend Racing, and Brent Friedland of Rootstock Racing. Thanks, fellas, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. There is some breakup during the episode when Craig is speaking. He is in New Zealand, after all, but it does not get in the way too much. So bear with it. Listen to it. Thank you to these guys for coming on board. We really appreciate them joining the Dark Zone. Enjoy this flesh episode. Sit back and relax. This is a good one. A full hour of race coverage from Worlds. Thank you, everybody. Keep up the great work and see you out there. Welcome back, listeners, to the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. We are on the tail end of the Adventure Racing World Championship from Paraguay. We've assembled a crack team of analysts. We've brought Craig and Brent back from our Flash Podcast opening, and we have Jason Magnus joining us. So we have Craig from New Zealand, AR Live Coverage. We have Brent from Philadelphia with Rootstock Racing and Jason Magnus all the way from Bend as part of Bend Racing. It's been a fantastic race, uh, a lot to follow. These three gentlemen have watched it much more closely than I have. I appreciate them coming on the show today. Fellas, it's like eating an elephant this race, right? Talking about it. A lot happens over five days, one bite at a time. Before we get into the details, Jason, I know that you know a lot about the Team Ben's final races. Craig, you've been watching closely. Brent, you've been watching closely. By the way, shout out to Barbara Campbell. Tried to get her to join tonight, but she is in her Wi-Fi free cabin. So she's the real winner out of all of this. Barbara Campbell, we miss you. We have to get you on the show soon enough. First things first, Craig, coming to you. Talk about the course. You've covered a lot of world championships. How do you rate the course? Hard, easy, in between. What do you think? Uh, pretty standard, I guess, for a world championship. It was, um, I mean, it was tougher than it looked on paper, obviously, and it, they often are. And obviously, hats off to Brent for picking the time estimates and such things there. Um, bang on. And yeah, I think even Nathan probably underestimated a little bit. I think he was expecting to crack it in under four days. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting. I thought probably the best feedback on the course was probably Chris Fawn when he crossed the finish line, and there was a video clip there of him, and uh, and he sort of didn't enjoy the first track very much. Uh, said it was pretty long and almost a little bit boring. Um, I think for Chris, it just lacked a little bit of um, challenge, and by the end of it, they were pretty smashed. Um, and then he said, you know, it got more interesting as it went along and, and there was some more nav challenges uh, along the way on those second and third tricks in particular. And he enjoyed it a lot more. The I think someone like Chris, obviously it's hard for a um, race director to design a course that's going to challenge Chris, but be achievable for everybody else. And but he certainly enjoyed the later nav and such things. So, yeah, no, I think it was pretty much, uh, I guess you'd call it maybe a standard world championship course. Um, certainly not the longest or the toughest, but a good one. And it certainly kept the teams close, so keep things interesting. And yeah, it was, it was a good race. Sounds great. Brent, what was your take on the course, having watched it from afar? Yeah, I mean, I think I would echo a lot of that. Um, you know, I, I also, I was re-watching a little clip this afternoon with um, Abby, who didn't get to watch much. Uh, and it was actually when Avaya 
was heading out on that um, second trek and were behind Swedish armed forces and they were interviewing everybody and um, they were talking to Simone and she actually had a similar comment. It was a little more vague. She didn't reference a specific stage, but had kind of pointed out that up till that point, um, you know, they didn't feel like there was much route choice and it was, uh, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, so I, I think that that certainly seemed true until we got to that second trek. And I remember we talked about how that second trek might be more pivotal. I was surprised that the first trek actually seemed as straightforward as it did. I mean, I think I would have expected more chaos from the top teams, but um, from what I saw, and there was so there were so many dots to follow on that first stage that it was a little bit hard and overwhelming to really um, you know see what was going on big picture. But I didn't see a lot of disasters. I know some of the um, less experienced teams struggled a bit out there in terms of keeping themselves found, but I didn't really notice any top teams having issues that seemed to stem from navigation. Um, so that was a little surprising, but then, I mean, man, that, that, that last stage, which I imagine Jason's going to enlighten us on in a minute, you know, you look at that stage and you see Avaya, you know, crush it, take care of business, move slightly faster than the, um, projections. And then you see like the next two, like the two top ranked teams in the world take three times as long to get through it. Right. I mean, that was a pretty spectacular little stage that they saved for the end. Jason, thanks for coming all the way from Bend. New to the analyst team here. Good to have you. What's your take on the course? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you know, as primarily a racer and also race director, so I kind of you know feel like I'm right right with Ertzi. Um, you know, that, that he's a very competent, uh, excellent racer as well. You know, I think it's very interesting, and I'm I'm wondering what he thought about in designing the course because to me it was pretty brilliant in the sense that the first two stages were pretty much purely physical. Right. But what that allowed to to happen is for a lot of these teams to push themselves to the edge of their physical capacity. And then, bam, all of a sudden on that next track, they were exhausted. They'd been pushing the pace and things fell apart for for most of the teams. Right. At least in some answer. And, and if they didn't in that stage, there was another trekking stage with difficult navigation. And then there was another difficult. Like so there was basically like three O courses toward the end of this race after teams have been kind of lulled into this sense where it was all about speed and power. Right. And so as a racer, I know that there's a lot of those teams out there that were really pushing and like, Oh, we're up here in the front. We're, we're doing really well. And then you just saw these teams collapse because they didn't manage their sleep. They didn't manage their nutrition. They didn't manage something. And then, you know, like we, we saw a number of teams, life Impotech is, is life, life aventura. Like, they're one of those teams that was up there at the top with Avaya, with these teams till halfway through the stage, you know, halfway through the race. And then they're not even finished yet. They're like going to finish two days behind the leaders, probably, um, you know, and they're, and they're known as a really fast team, but, but it's when that navigation comes at the end, you know, um, and, and I'm sure we'll get to talk a lot about like what happened with Avaya and, and where the, you know, where they actually won the race. But, but to me as a course design you know, it, it is pretty fascinating that it was fast and furious. It was just this pure physical thing at the beginning. And then it's not really till the second half of the race that, you know, that the navigation had to shine. And, and for a lot of teams, it was too late to switch gears because they were already, you know, they were already too tired. So to give a sense for the listener of how hard that first stage was, 32 hours is roughly the number that was being bandied about is how long it would take. There were te- now the lead teams did it very strong. And to your point, physical, strong, tough trek. There were teams that were coming in over 70 hours that, that were out there for, for days at a time. 
And that was the first stage, 122 kilometers at 70 hours. So I think you're spot on that a big trek, then a big paddle really served to soften teams up. And by the time they got later on in the race, that's when everything else had to take over. And and that first first trek and paddle, what that did is it really established who the elite athletes were. And I don't mean any disrespect to the people at the back of the field, but like that first, you know, it, it's like an ultra marathon, ultra marathon, ultra marathon, and then an ultra paddle, right? Which basically asks the question of like, who are the actual elite endurance athletes in this field, right? Who are the ones that can actually keep going and make short work of this and finish in 30, 40 hours, and then do the paddle in, in 10 or 15 hours with a little bit of sleep. And, you know, we had a clearly established, if you look at the tracking, like there were only 25 teams out of this whole field that were able to really do that in any, any reasonable amount of time. Right. And so to those at the back, they may have had some success in other expeditions, but you know, you kind of got to wonder, like they, they don't necessarily need more navigation. They just need more speed, more physicality, if they're going to be competitive on a world course. Right. Coming over to you now, talk a bit about the that that second trek. We talked a lot about how the first trek, athleticism, you had the big paddle, then you had that O course right there. We began to see some spread on teams, teams that were Avaya, and let's not bury the lead, Avaya world champion again. I mean, the penalties are going to come up, but at the end of the day, like I told Craig before we started recording, the penalties are pushed to the side, right? The, the wind was so resounding that the penalties ended up really meaning nothing at the final result. I'm sure in the race, they felt like a bigger deal. What was your take on that second track in the teams that, and how that separated teams out there? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll actually kind of move back a little bit to what Jason was just saying as well. Um, and really it's only a comment for Avaya. So we can dive into Avaya to some degree here. Um, you know, clearly the second trek had more of the, the tricky navigation we talked about uh, a week ago, you know, when Craig and I were on and both reflecting on what we've seen over four or five of these races before, you know, that first race was, or that first stage was really surprising to me, as I already said. And then the second one, you started to see those top teams really start to struggle, right? And some of that was the fact they were, those lead teams went in there kind of in the evening. So they were doing a lot of it in the dark and um, it was nighttime. But even, you know, the next day as teams were in there in daylight, you could see that they were struggling, whereas Avaya didn't. So that was huge, right? Like that that totally changed the nature of the race. The other thing that struck me, which, you know, this is one of those like fly on the wall, you have no idea. You know, I think back to Avaya over the last 10 years, right? In race after race, uh, I feel like there's a point where you, you hear from Nathan, who I, I really admire for how honest he is when he you know reflects on his races and his team. And one of the things I just remember him always kind of pointing out was like they I, like I've never heard or seen them really push themselves. Right. And I'm not saying they don't push themselves, but he often will make a comment that they were racing their own race and that even the other top teams around them, they look at them and they're like, they're working really hard and we're just steady. Right. And so, you know, watching Avaya for, was it, I don't even know now, was it, it was Tuesday, I guess, when they kind of fell behind a little bit with the penalty and, and then they just seemed to be like hanging on with Swedish armed forces. And those two teams were side by side for almost 24 hours. Right. And I, I'm sitting there watching. And I think a lot of people around the world were kind of wondering, all right, have we actually seen that moment or are we watching that moment where we see some some kind of chink in the armor, right? Or, or maybe they can't quite um, keep up with this really strong physical Swedish team. And then they just took over the race, right? And so back to Jason's point, like I'm left wondering, 
were they doing what they have always done, right? And yes, they are the like really strong elite athletes that Jason's alluding to, and that's what they're able to do. They're able to push, but are they also holding something in reserve and are they capable of taking things to a higher level that no one really can for the rest of the race? So my final thing, and I'll turn it over to Craig, is um, the other thing that just really surprised me at that point is I'm not sure Avaya had dramatically more sleep than Swedish Armed Forces to that point, right? They, they both slept on the river. Um, they both slept overnight. Avaya might have gotten an extra hour in one of those sleeps, maybe maybe both. But then from that point forward, I don't think Avaya really stopped until they were forced to stop at that transition at the end. And that kind of, you know, floored me because that's usually how they win the race, in my opinion, is they they manage to, to manage sleep in a way that no one else seems to be able to. Um, and I didn't feel like they actually could do that in this race. And it didn't seem to matter. Greg, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. Um, just going back to the first trek, the, uh, there was a moment in there that was quite pivotal, I, I felt, that where there was a couple of mistakes and it was just after dark. It was about 7.30, 8 o'clock. If you actually replay the tracking, it's really quite interesting. Um, I think it was just after CP7. Um, Estonia, SAF, and Seclus uh, Hunt, Honey Power, all went off uh, a little ridge and they lost about 20 minutes. And then just after CP8, Merrill, who was still with the Vaya, um, took a, a left turn and they lost probably 10, 15 minutes. And all of a sudden, it's like a little gap opened up. Vaya were just sitting back. They just all of a sudden moved through the pack and then they saw the, the opportunity and they just took off. And they opened up a, a substantial gap and it was out to like about five kilometres during that trek. Um, which is quite a bit um, during the night. During in the next morning, I think it, it stayed pretty constant. And by that stage, and I think by the end of the trek, they were starting to suffer too. So the pace had probably dropped off a little bit. Um, but I mean, they essentially got off that trek with an hour and a half ahead of life uh, adventure and two hours ahead of SAF. And unfortunately, they then got the penalty. Well, not unfortunately, but you know, obviously they got a penalty. Um, which they had to serve, and they got on the river, you know, about an hour before the other teams. They did bank an extra hour, I, I feel, on the river, but instead of getting and maintaining that gap, the penalty sort of brought the field back to them, and they got off the water all at the same time. And I think mentally that was actually really, really tough for Avea. I think that that hurt them quite badly, and it actually took them probably 24 hours to get over it and, and recover from it before they sort of um, got the strategy together to put pedal to the metal and, and carry on and, and do what they wanted to do. But, um, yeah, that, that penalty really, really hurt them, I think. Otherwise, they would have helped got that gap, they would have maintained it and it would have been status quo, um, you know, transmission as usual and and they would have just done what they've done the last two or three times, I feel. They come off the water right around hour 47. Yeah. In your own recollection, Avaya was known for their resounding success. You think it rattled them looking around at hour 47 and a lot of teams being in their orbit? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, they'd, they'd done the work to get that gap to get on the water well in advance, bank more sleep, probably get off the water still with an hour advantage and then just carry on and, and polish off the course, which would have been their strategy, I believe. And But it brought them back to the pack. And I think, as I say, I think mentally it was probably quite tough for them. And and then, because it was a battle after that, you know, they had to actually fight for it. And, 
and that definitely changed changed their race strategy and and put a chink in their armor I think for a little while but ultimately it had no effect yeah. So having that happen to them and, and, you know, we could talk about Avaya a whole lot. The other teams that were chasing after them, where do those teams, where do you think the pivotal moment came for them in the race where it became clear that they were now fighting for second and third place? Did it happen as far back as that second trek? Did the other penalty for Avaya later on in the race play a role there? Like what, what got in the way of SAF? What got in the way of Estonia? Was it the sleep? Was it the, was it the fatigue? What do you think was the, was the deal for them? Well, I mean, um, you know, so so one thing I just want to uh, point out, just just to kind of be clear, because uh, I talked to some of the referees and some of the people at the race, like I think it's good to not not consider that that first uh, uh, hour with Avaya as a penalty because it really was a time equalization. Like they missed something that took teams thirty five minutes with the ropes. Yeah, it's fine. And then in the referee's discretion, they said, okay, we can't just give them 35 minutes because they get to sit here and rest and everybody needs rest. So they, they you know, average it out. Most teams are 40 minutes. So they said, we're going to give them an hour, right? And, and I'm sure it felt bad to Avaya, but it really, like it allowed them to rest. So they essentially were going forward with more rest than, than all the other teams. So it was a good equalization. I like really think that that was a good thing. So the real penalty came with them losing the tracker and, you know, going back that they did that second track basically neck and neck with Saf, Saf and Avaya or Saf and Estonia. Like they all finished that trek at the same time. And that's when Avaya got that penalty. Um, and, you know, what I'm really curious of, which I haven't got confirmed, you know, until I, I talked to Saf or, or Estonia is like, if those teams knew about the penalty, right? Um, because that's, that to me is the interesting question, because if, if they don't know about the penalty, then they certainly feel pressure to try to stay with Avaya regardless of sleep, because they think they're on equal footing, right? If they know about the penalty, maybe, who knows, like may, maybe they decided to try to stay with them or, or they should have tried to sleep. But Avaya certainly knew that they could not sleep until they got to the penalty box, right? So they basically had their race strategy forced upon them. It was like, hey, if you guys are going to win this race, you know, at least in their minds, it had to be, we have to get to the penalty box and sleep for two hours. And you know, watching that next track, you know, like, like the, the Swedes led that whole next bike. Right. So it wasn't until that, that third track of the race and the Swedes left on that third track ahead of Avaya. And then they, they were basically neck and neck. And then there was a, a two kilometer section. I want to say it's between checkpoint 67 and 68, like literally a two kilometer section. They were at 67 together. The Swedes made an error and headed North. And by the time they got to 68, which was literally two kilometers away, Avaya had put an hour on SAF, right? And it was over. Like at that point, once you lose sight of Avaya in these races, like there, it doesn't matter how motivated you are, like you just know that Chris Forn is not going to make the same mistakes, <laughs> even little mistakes. They add up, right? Like SAF could have, you know, navigated excellently, but somehow Chris is going to pull five minutes out on this checkpoint and 10 minutes out on this checkpoint and five minutes out on this checkpoint. And in a race with a hundred more check, you know, 50 more checkpoints that, you know, like at that point, when I saw that, even though they only had gained an hour and they needed to gain two, it was just like, that's, that's it. If you can gain one hour in checkpoints that are two kilometers apart, there's just nobody that can navigate like those guys, especially when they're tired. And it was, it was remarkable to watch them turn, you know, equal footing 50 something hours, 70, 71 hours into the race to a win by 10 or, or whatever it is, six hours. It's just like, it's crazy. 
if you if, if for, for, the, for those at home if you want to go back and look at that go into the tracker our 8337 is the section you're talking about right there jason how they they basically came into that section neck and neck they go a little bit north right as, as sweet as staff goes goes north catches comes back down by the time they caught themselves avaya put the put the pedal down and off they went really and to your point excellent analysis that is the moment in the race that avaya just never looked back from there yeah right. what do you think yeah, I mean, I, I, echoing a lot of that, but just to like look at a couple numbers more closely, just to kind of put some of this in perspective, right? You know, at TA um, uh, five, right when they came into that trek, they were at seventy-seven hours of racing with Swedish Armed Forces being technically twenty, well, less than twenty, but basically twenty minutes ahead, right? By the end of the race, right, Avaya finished in one hundred and two hours, which ended up being nine hours ahead of Swedish Armed Forces, right? Um, and also remember Estonia was in striking distance. They were only an hour behind the two of them at that point. So you basically had three teams all within, you know, basically a statistical tie for this kind of race at that point. So within essentially 24 hours, Avaya puts on nine hours on Swedish armed forces and ultimately put on, you know, almost 20 on Estonia, right? Like, that's just unbelievable. And so, you know, the, the other thing I was going to just observe is, you know, the same video that I, I mentioned earlier where Simone was talking about the course. I remember watching that video. They're walking out of TA, right? Like Swedish Armed Forces is ahead of them going out on this trek. Swedish Armed Forces is running out of TA. And Avaya is walking down a road, eating, talking to uh, Team Ferris from Ecuador who had dropped out, talking to the film crew, being gracious with their time. And I remember just looking at it and I think I even posted on attack one. I was like, they do not look like they have a whole lot of urgency. And I wasn't saying that in a critical way. It was more just like an observation of it's not what I would have expected for a team at that point. And I just think that speaks so much to their ability to control the race. And so I'm not sure I really personally think that they were rattled, but I think, you know, Nathan alluded to this at the finish line, like they had to they had to change their strategy in the middle of the race, which I don't know that any other team could really do that the way they were able to in this race to be able to then put away these top teams in the last 24 hours. But I think it was totally intentional. I think they coasted through that that bike ride in the start of that trek. They were preparing for the night. They knew they were going to make that move overnight on that trek. They executed it as they hoped. Swedish Armed Forces, you know, helped a little bit in making the bobble, but I'm not sure it would have mattered. The Swedish Armed Forces, I just think, didn't have what Avaya had left in the tank at that point. I mean, so, you know, I think Avaya was just waiting. Like, you know, on some level, you, you just can imagine, like Chris and Nathan, and you know, they've been racing for 20 years, and and the reality is, they know that people that don't have sleep are going to make bobbles, right? So, I don't know that it was that exact point, but I think you're right. They were just with the Swedes. You know, and they're just kind of, they know that as soon as, you know, that they're going to make a mistake at some point, right? And, and, and that Chris, you know, like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's easy to view him as, as like super, some superhuman mythical navigation figure, but the reality is that is who he is, right? In, in this sport, he is the guy that just somehow doesn't make these, these mistakes or, or recognizes them so much faster that it doesn't seem like it. Um, yeah. And, and Greg, in, in this, yeah, um, that interview with Simone was fascinating, actually, and and she alluded to it 
also where she said, you know, we're going into the trek tonight. We sort of hope there's some really tricky navigation in there and such things. So, yeah, they were. They were just cruising along, having a chat and and uh, and just waiting for it to get dark. And and then they were going to sort of do what they do. And But as I, as I said earlier about that first trek, when all of a sudden they just put the pedal down at night and just put a gap on the other teams. And, I mean, the other teams maintain their speed. They were actually able to accelerate. And, I mean, there's no other team that can do that and there's no one else that can match it. And then I also did a post on section on the third trek and their navigation was just... Craig, hold on a second there, Craig. They You're, missed uh, a turn off in the last Greg. half an hour Craig, and that's when Avaya caught up. Yeah. Craig, you, you broke up there a little bit. Try to rewind 30 seconds and say that again. Okay, so, yeah, they were going into that third track and uh, Seth missed a turn off to, I think it was checkpoint 65 or 66, something like that, and they lost half an hour. And then all of a sudden, Avaya were right with them, and I think it was checkpoint 67 where Avaya had a 10-minute gap. SAF actually went dark for an hour, their tracker, or did on my my tracking anyway. And when it came to again, they were a kilometre away uh, from 68 down in a creek to the east-northeast, you know, and it was just like, holy crap, you know, what happened there, you know, and and that was it. But um, Avaya just executed that stage with so much precision. They just went point to point to point. And they were out of there. And, yeah, by the time they left that uh, trekking section, they had, what, two-and-a-half-hour lead, and, which nullified the penalty. And, and then they just pressed it home, and, and the rest is history, as they say, I guess. Uh, and so it's the night navigation that, from this race in particular, I've noticed that just, they are just so much faster than everyone else that people, they just can't compete with it. And they know that they can get to that point of the race at some stage, put the hammer down at night, Put a gap on everyone, and it's it's good night nurse and you race over. It's it's amazing how Avaya can just do that. But you know there were fifty over fifty teams out there, right? And Avaya, you know, we 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 led with them because they deserve to be spoken of first, right? Because they had so much going on out there on the course. They did so well, so 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 decisively. And and to your gentleman's credit, you've been watching the videos and been talking to people on the ground there. So while we have some speculation here. We're firm in some of the things that we know and understand. And thank you, Jason, for for recognizing and pointing out that that was a penalty was actually a time equalization, that they did the math and said, let's make it fair and off we go. Yeah. Question about strategy that we saw there. I think the for the for the for the developing racer that's out there. And this is a bit of a I'm extending this idea going into the conversation. And this may be wrong. Saf running out of the transition and Avaya walking out of the transition. Do you think Avaya like, and Saf get okay, Craig? It's almost like Avaya treated that first part still as transition. They were still transitioning as they were walking along, eating, fueling up, ready for the trek, where um, and preparing themselves. So yeah, I guess that's maybe just a slightly different approach. Gotcha. And they saw the they saw the big picture, right? They had to go into that section, somewhat fed, slowing down a little bit, making sure they're feeling okay, and off they go into that. Um, and so congratulations, Avaya, completely decisive victory, world champions again. 
Um, we saw pictures of Nathan with his eye bandaged. We saw pictures of everyone sort of hobbling around a little bit and, you know, it was, it was, it was dressed like a pirate day in Paraguay. So good job, Nathan, on doing that. We're proud of you. A lot of other stories in this race, a lot of other people going out there. Um, who else we want to talk about? Jason, Bend, let's talk about it. What a result for them. Holy cow. Go America. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, uh, before we get right to Bend, like to me, I think it was cool that this race had basically, you know, I can learn a lot from it as a racer, as an expedition racer, especially because you you had the same story that was happening with Avaya happening, you know, with the top five happening with the top 10, still happening with the top 10, you know, and really, I think it comes down to, you know, just that understanding of, of capability and pacing, you know, which, which, you know, you know, Estonia and the Swedes clearly don't have as well as Avaya, right? Um, you know, I can't help but think like, if Estonia had stopped and slept for three hours, they would have got third. Like, there's just no way. Like, they burned so much time being sleep deprived and not willing to sleep because they were afraid of what they were going to lose. And then they lost it anyway. Right. I mean, it's the same thing with the Swedes potentially. And it's the same thing with like Merrill song lines. Like, we just saw this story play out again and again and again of not really recognizing the, the capacity. And that's, that I think is the crazy thing about expedition racing. Like there's this moment when as a navigator or as a team leader, where you actually, you know, like this is studied by science, where you actually feel like you're doing well, like you're sleep deprived, but you actually have this completely false sense of your ability, right? And like, you think you're navigating well, you think you're moving fast, you think all these things are happening, but anybody from the outside could look at you and say like, you are messed up. <laughs> and nothing is working for you, right? And so I think the really good teams, you know, have somebody on that team that can recognize that and be like, dude, if we take an hour nap, we're going to gain back that time so fast, right? And then you, you see these, you know, Estonia has done it two years in a row, right? Where they're just like, so they're such a good team. But once you exceed that capacity, and you think you're doing well, but you're not, like Life Adventure is a great example in this team. They're so fast. And they went from like in that top pack to maybe, you know, top 15. Yep. They've fallen so far back, um, you know, and, and I just talked to Chelsea, you know, briefly. And she was like, you know, for a while they were with Life Impotech and Life Impotech was just desperately trying to follow them because they had no idea basically what country they were in. Right. It's like right. they're just upside down. Right. It all just caught up with them. Like at some point, you know, and then Life Impotech got to check one for him and they got all upset and then before long, they just see life impotech, like just wandering around completely lost again. Right. And so, you know, that's just a matter of, you know, it's such a fascinating sport to me because, you know, there is a physical, you know, physicality and, and a physical ability and endurance and speed that is super important. And then, you know, what I think, you know, Vaya and, and, you know, I think Ben did a great job this time of figuring out, although they almost lost it at the end, but you know, it was, it was pretty exciting to see what teams are taking care of themselves enough to keep racing. And, you know, you've had this experience, Brian, where you, where you think that the, the transition area is close. You're like, think the stage is almost yep. over. You think the finish line is almost over. And like, you let down your guard, and like, we're just going to push it. And then all of a sudden, a stage that should take four hours takes 12 hours. Yep. Like we just saw that happen in this race over and over and over again. Like, oh, they're almost done. But like, actually, no. Yeah, so it's, and you just you just bleed time. It's amazing how the clock speeds up, and and we see it time with time with navigators, right? Their confidence goes up, and their and their capacity goes down, right? Mm -hmm. And and coming back to to your race earlier, and you know, poor Team Eastwind had a really rough race this race. I think they heartbreaking what kind of race they had. If we rewind a little bit, and we go back to Expedition Oregon. Team Eastwind took the sleep more philosophy, and it served them very well during your race. 
Right. And and it becomes that balance. In Expedition Oregon, we saw, you know, Viterade, which is a, a world's top team, basically come so close to imploding, right? They were pushing that sleep envelope and, you know, basically thinking that they were going to finish the course in three days instead of five and a half. And, you know, Eastwind was slow and steady and slept probably 10 hours more than Viterade was like within 20 minutes of them. And, and honestly, you know, the only thing that kept Eastman from winning that race was not adapting, which is what Avaya is really good at. So, you know, Eastwind could have been served by saying, hey, we don't need two more hours sleep. We can take an hour sleep and, and win this race, you know, but they were so stuck in their in their idea of sleep that they weren't able to pull it out. And and that's what was really cool with Avaya is we saw that they were able to do both, right? They were able to like have their sleep and bank it and, and be ahead and then not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, it was like the Ben racing. Oh my God. The, the end of that, like watching, watching them get lost on the last checkpoint, um, was, was pretty excruciating. So, yeah, I mean, I, I did hear, you know, I just heard from them that again, this is sleep deprivation, but they literally went, I think it was checkpoint 94, the second to last checkpoint, it was a cave and they found the cave and they went into the cave and they went pretty deep in the cave and they didn't find the checkpoint. And so they came out of the cave and they thought maybe it's a different cave. Oh. They started wandering around for an hour looking for another cave. Oh. And then finally went back to the cave. And Chelsea was like, we need to go deeper in the cave. And they went deeper in the cave, probably 50 meters deeper than they went the last time around a little rocky thing. And there was the checkmark. So they literally <laughs> were there and then left it because they were worried about getting past like, Oh, it's gotta be a different cave. Right. But that's, that's the mind. Right. And then, and luckily like Merrill also got there and they didn't actually find the cave. They were still looking for the cave. So it was like this crazy thing watching on the track of these teams that have been racing for 120 hours within two kilometers of the finish line, completely like losing their, their scope of reality and, and almost, you know, losing, losing that placement. So, um, you know, obviously they were very, very excited to make that game, but, you know, I think Ben, you know, I, I talked to Ben and they made three of those, you know, three of those errors during the race where they basically were at the checkpoint and then second guessed themselves and then wandered around for a while. Um, and, you know, eventually ended up right back where they were at the checkpoint. And they're like, Oh, it's, it's like right here. Like the other one that Ben talked about was, you know, and this is my favorite thing is my, my least favorite thing in some of these world races in South America is the picture checkpoint, right? I, I've, you know, in, in Ecuador before I've had problems where there was the, the checkpoint was take a picture of this power pole on the ridge. And so, you know, unfortunately you get to the ridge and there's a ton of power poles. And so you take a picture of the power pole that you think is the right one. And then the instructions say, follow the, the little trail down from the power pole down into the steep ravine. So you find the pine trail that goes into the steep ravine, but then you feel like you're going to die because it's it's one power pole further, right? And there's another trail there. And, and so, you know, at one point they got to a waterfall with a ladder in it, right? But the ladder did not look, it was, the ladder had been changed. They confirmed this, like the ladder had been changed from when the picture was taken. So they got to a waterfall with a ladder in it, but they were like, that's not the same water, same ladder that's in the picture on our passport. So we can't take that. And so then they wander around and then there's waterfalls and ladders and there's like, where's the exact ladder? <laughs> and in the end, you know, they're like, just take a damn picture of the ladder and go. Right. right. But in, in their mind, they're like, oh, this ladder's like got 
five rungs instead of four. This can't be the right ladder, but it's a huge amphitheater with a waterfall that's at the right point. Anyway, so it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that they, and add to that sleep deprivation, right? And, you know, it's two navigators that think different things and, and they had some fun out there um, from, you know, from what they said, just, just those little minute details. But um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously pleased that they were able to pull it out um, and that now I can sleep tonight. So that's good. So, so Brent, I'm going to come to you in a second to talk a bit about some of the teams that were outside the top five and that top 10. I know we watched very closely those teams. Before that, though, I want to go back to you, Jason. Let's give the, the, the uh, tail of the tape. Bend racing, their placement, what it means for American racers, their team composition. I know you talked a bit on Facebook about it. Tell us now, what exactly did Bend racing accomplish with their finish? Um, I mean, you know, it's something we've been searching for or, or training for, for, I don't know, almost, almost a decade. Um, they, they are the top American team in the race, but they're also the highest placement at world championships for an all American team. Um, you know, adventure medical kits has been very well known, you know, they, they haven't been racing for a while, but even they had an Australian navigator. So they pulled in Rob Preston from Australia as their primary navigator for years. Um, and, and achieved pretty high results in the world championships, um, never beating Avaya. But it's been a long time since we saw an American team in the top 10. I think the last time an all-American team was in the top 10 was in 2014 in Ecuador, um, when I was there with Dan and Chelsea and Eric Sanders. Um, but, you know, you know, as this sport kind of goes towards more of that national feel, like with the, the three teammates and the same, same nationality required, which is nice. Um, you know, it makes it a little bit more exciting to root for a little bit more dynamic. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. I think we're very, very excited. We've been training for it for a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, Van and Chelsea and, and Dusty and Emily, um, for, for kind of doing that. And it's really nice to see the Americans, um, a lot of American teams, root sock included, just like pushing back towards expeditions and, and wondering what it takes to, to not just finish these races, but to be competitive. Um, the other pretty exciting thing that, that Chelsea was really excited about was I think they were the top team in the world championships with a two female, two yes. male ratio. Um, you know, which is like it's it's uh it's not the biggest deal, but it is nice to see more top women in the sport. And traditionally it's it's rarely um seen that that uh, that, that kind of um makeup uh wins these races or, or does well in these you know top top five or top ten in these races well on that same note you know by virtue of calendars where they had to go the u.s ara national championships came right before the world championships and yeah. rootstock racing um an all-female team of, of abby yeah. perkis karen delaney and nikki driscoll had the highest placement ever at a, a national championship for a, a three-person yeah. uh, a three-woman team so i agree with you i think that there's a um we, we don't want to point too much in the fact that these races speak to an overall trend, but it's safe to say that with the growth of, with the growth of American adventure racing, seeing this kind of success on the national and international field says a lot about the direction that we're going. Um, and, and I was, I was at nationals and honestly, like I, I remember seeing Abby and, and her team come into transition. And I was like, are, you know, like where, while we were still in the transition, I was like, are you guys still full course? And they were like, yeah. I went like, Oh, awesome like yeah. crazy right um you know and and you know we raced with the newcomer amanda Boley that was like you know any any u.s race teams that want to pick up amanda she's amazing um you know it's really just cool to see women being more in, more interested in and because they're super capable so yeah I'm, I'm i'm all for um that progression in, in the u.s adventure racing scene 
So, so, uh, you know, a hundred plus hour race, all these miles, a thousand stories out there, right? Teams. I mean, let's, let's talk about American teams, team disability, right? They're still out there slugging away right now. I think right now they're pushing a bike. They were on that first track for over 70 hours and, you know, they had to unfortunately join the short course teams. If you're still out there, you're pretty much short course. And I know that Luis who's on their team. His bike is broken and they appear to be running it across Paraguay now. Right. So a million stories going on out there. Brent, what jumped out at you during the race? What are we seeing out there story wise with other teams? Well, yeah, I want to go. I mean, I want to go back to the, to the top, you know, I know we've, we've spent a lot of time at the top, but like, Huge shout out to Brazil, right? You know, I know we, all the three of us talked about Brazil as like our odd man out of the podium. I think all three of us kind of agreed that they were going to probably be the runner up to the podium. And it really looked like that was what it was going to be. And I think Nick uh, at the finish line, Nick was talking about how basically going into that last stage, that's what they were settling for. Not that they were stopping to race, but they were like, we're going to, we're racing for fourth place. And then, you know, of course, unfortunately, their tracker died on us. So we, we had nothing to go by except that we could see that Estonia was falling apart. Right. And we knew that uh, Brazil was close enough that maybe they had pulled it off. Um, and I, I don't know if any of the three of you have the chance to watch it and, and kind of see it relatively close to live time. But all of a sudden, right, ARWS goes live like they did with Avaya, which was a super cool function, by the way. I thought it was really fun to be able to like actually travel the last, you know, 15 to 45 minutes, depending on who they were catching when. Uh, but they catch, you know, um, the Brazil team at the end coming in and just watching those guys get those guys finish, knowing that they had uh, managed to get back to the podium, you know, the highest finish ever for a Brazilian team and just the kind of the pride and joy of that. And how the like, you know, experience, I think nabbing in Paraguay really helped them um, catch up to Estonia and pass them. That was just, I mean, that was awesome. That was maybe like the the best storyline of the race for me. Um, the classic the case of not giving up. Yeah. Right. Hanging, hanging around long enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brent, I want to point out, we had our pre-race predictions that we went through here. Um, and it's worth pointing out that I have a cross out here. You picked the value for the win. All three of us did. Um, you picked Saf for second. Good job. Your original pick for third was Brazil, and you had me cross mm. it out and put down Estonia. So you were almost you almost got the podium all correct there, Brent. But Look there's close. always next yeah. year. Next. But to, but to the point, Brazil is an example of the fact of stay in the race, keep yourself moving, stay navigating, mm-hmm. stay smart. And sometimes other teams are your best teammates. They help you out, right? They have a really challenging time, and you're able to pass them at the finish line. So so good yeah. for them. Yeah. No, so, was, uh... Craig, about you? There's some teams out there that you loved. Yeah, no, I think one of the other key things, and Jason touched on it too, was just strategy. And it was very chalk and cheese, this race. There were the group that went with the leaders, as always, and then there were the ones that started off a little bit slower and came through later on. And, um, you know, Merrill and Adventure Life, like Adventure Life have fallen apart a a little bit and and dropped well back. But I think Merrill, I mean, if you're going to give you a chance, self a chance for top five, you've got to go hard pretty early. And they did that and they've hung in pretty well. And yeah, they've been picked up by a few teams in the last day or so and and have dropped down a little bit. But if you want to try for podium or top five, then you've got to go pretty hard early. Um, I think a lot of the other teams and... Um, you know, Usui and Quest, um, you know, have come home and finished really well. Great strategies. 
and such things. And I mean, all those teams, I guess, had top 10 aspirations and both strategies kind of worked. Um, but, um, you know, they're probably not going to get top five or, or podium. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it can really blow apart for a few teams. And obviously, uh, Honey Power from Estonia, um, I see that I've dropped well back. Nordisk, um, they're still just possible top 10. So they might still uh, sneak in there as well, along with uh, Life Adventure may still be around the top 10 mark. But I was, I was really pleased with for Life Adventure actually because I, I've picked them a couple of times before to, to do quite well because they're such a strong team. But they've started off slowly and just never really um, gained much ground, finished 22nd last year. So I was actually really pleased for them to, to actually just roll the dice and, and go with the leaders and just see how long they could hang in there and, and actually um, give themselves a chance, I guess, where in the past they haven't. And, yeah, it looks like they might end up just outside the top ten, but it, it, at least they gave it a crack. So I do uh, – the most amazing performance for me in the whole race is Black Hill. Um, those guys were – mid-pack at best halfway through the first trek. They finished the first trek 10 hours or 10 and a half hours behind the leaders. Um, and they have passed every other team in the top 20 apart from the top four. And that's just phenomenal. And you, you've got to wonder a little bit, okay, if they went a little bit faster earlier, um, you know, could they have podium? Um, but their, their race strategy really is – uh, conservatives start with I don't think they sleep in transitions they seem to get in and out of transitions really quick and pass teams in transition and then but then they're just steady and and their time only 40 minutes slower than SAF from the kayak onwards for the whole course is is a testament to that they're a good team and they're fast and they navigate really well um, but interesting interesting strategy and that's it was really obvious in this race. There were the ones that went out hard early, faded, some held out in there. Merrill Songlines, I thought, did have a great race. And, I mean, they'll be dangerous in Africa next year. Look out. Yeah, they'll be the Brazil of next year. Um, they'll be pushing for podium for sure on home turf. Um, so I thought they had a, I thought they had a great race, really, for a pretty inexperienced team, apart from John Collins, obviously. Um, but, but, yeah, no, it was very interesting. But top 10 strategies, they can be – Totally different, but you end up with the same result. So it was it was a fascinating race. How about the story behind Gym City AR? Did they pick up a fourth teammate down there? Like someone couldn't make it? <laughs> Haven't heard about that. Don't know about it. Yeah. I heard there was there was a, a story that's gonna come out of that that their their team had a had a final they had to sort of throw a team together the last minute and get them all out on the course. And they're doing very well. They're still out there. They're they're pushing yeah. the top ten themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. so they're a good credit. team. Actually, Estonia had a few problems with gear too, didn't they? Which probably impacted them a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the battle's getting to the to the race itself, right? And once you get started off, we go. Brent, what else are you thinking? I was going to say a couple other teams that I think we mentioned these teams um, as well. You know, I know Ben Canada, uh, you know, and Jason's probably watched them a little bit closer than I have in terms of the dots, but I know Canada seemed to have a uncharacteristically challenging start. Um, You know, they were a bit further back for the first half of the race than I expected, but I think they've, they've really kind of rounded into form and 
have moved up a number of spots. So I've been uh, impressed by them and are still watching them closely. Um, I think one that I had mentioned in our pre-race was the the team from Uruguay, right. Who has a ton of experience in this race. And um, I was actually just looking at them again, you know, they, they similarly were, you know, a fair ways back um, relatively speaking, and they've kind of moved up into the top 15 and have been kind of battling with that group around Ben Canada and Bozy from, I don't know how you pronounce Bozy's name, Bossy, maybe from Colombia. Um, and uh, the thing I just noticed, however, is while they are sitting in technically, I think 14th or 15th place, they haven't updated in um, like eight hours. So there's a chance that that Uruguay team is actually close to the end of the bike and if that is the case, they could be poised to overtake life for 11th place by the end of this thing, if that all plays out, right? So that's one I'm still watching closely and, and pretty excited by. Yeah. And and uh, just to add a little flavor to the, the Uruguay team, um, those, you know, Ruben is, I've known Ruben for a long time and, and raced against him a lot. And at least two of those uh uh, two of those teammates, maybe three were, I think three of them were recently just in Sweden for the one water race, which was the first, the world's first expedition swim run. And that was like three weeks ago. Right. Um, and, you know, to tell a little story, you know, like, honestly, like Uruguay is just not one of those teams that wins with speed. They don't quite have the power of some of these top teams, but they're so tenacious. And, you know, what I saw in you know, I, I was over there as well with, uh, you know, a, a kind of bend racing team of local athletes. And when my team decided to drop out on this beach, Uruguay was, I don't know, eight, I don't know six hours behind us or something like that, um, missing the cutoff. They, they hobbled into this beach section after hours and hours of 50 hours of swim run or something. And they got to the little boat there. And then the first thing they said is like, can we continue? Like, like my team had decided to like drop out because there was too much pain and too much suffering. And the Uruguayans had like barely able to walk and they hobble in and like, can we continue? And then they came over to me and said, hey, we don't have any food left. All our food's gone. Do you have some food we could have? So we gave them our food and they continued until they got pulled off the course, right? Um, you know, so those guys are tough and, and they're, it, it's really great to see them doing so well. I know they've kind of had top 20 finishes in the world championships before, but yeah, I'm rooting for them just like Brent. I'm like, why they haven't tracked for like, I don't know, a long time. Um, so I really expect to see them pop up in, you know, in that top 15 for sure. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a tremendous, like, you know, I, I it's kind of crazy knowing what the, the Swedish race was like. And we're like, you know, I was talking to him over there, like, are you guys going to be fit for worlds? And, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. I'm like, okay, good luck. Um, but obviously they're fit for worlds. Like they're doing great. So that's, that's pretty exciting to see. Are there, there are stories that we we've missed. Um, you know, we, we, we really haven't talked about the, the middle of the course and how teams are doing, you know, teams are out there still slugging away, right? I mean, the trackers are a little slow to update and that's just the, the nature of the beast with this kind of remote jungle access and things like that. A lot of teams still out there on the course, a lot of teams still trying to get in. What do you think of teams are going through right now? You know, they're, they're 130 hours into the race, clock's ticking. They're probably fighting to stay on the course, right? They don't want it. They've, you know, you look at like a 72 hour trek and then you look at a 19, 20 hours on the paddle. They're desperate to stay on the course. What do you think's going to happen to them? Are they going to be able to be, are they going to get transported to finish? Are they going to be sent directly there? I mean, there's a lot of ground on this course. This isn't very, I'm probably going to miss some of those treks probably 
Are they going to ride it into the finish as race directors? What do you think is going to happen out there? Um, I mean, I, I think that this is a big enough course that, you know, what I would like to hear is, is all of your guys' predictions, especially Brenton and Craig, like who is going to carry the, the Lantern Rouge position? Like who, you know, it's always a question with these races because everybody thinks they're maybe going to finish. And then it becomes really clear at some point that the course is just so big that, you know, that those, if you're coming close to the cutoffs, you're done. You know, it's it just a, it's a foregone conclusion that, that if you're barely making cutoffs, you're, you're not going to make the next one. Um, you know, so who do you, you know, who do you guys think is going to be the last full course team to finish? Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I have a hard time with this because honestly, I mean, unfortunately there's been so much chatter and, and I, I don't say this with any criticism toward the race director. Sometimes technology just fails us, but this tracking platform has not been ideal. So at this point, the problem I'm having is I don't even really know who's at the back, right? So for example, this ability is still tracking at the end of the paddle. Right. I've seen online updates that they're, moving on the short course, but also speculation that they're unofficial. They were briefly moved into the unofficial category. Now I see they're back on the full course, but they're also short course. So I, I don't know. Right. Right. Like th that just totally confuses me. Yeah. Um, Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it for yeah. a living. Um, I mean, this is not an answer. I mean, I'll, I'll look at it and think about it for the next couple of minutes, but like I'm really just like, you know, back to your question, Brian, like thinking about, man, these teams at the back, what their feet are going to look like. Cause you know, there's been some real carnage on those top teams. Like I know the, the, the second team from Estonia, the honey, uh, whatever, I, whatever they're called, honey um, you know, like there was a great story about the, they left on the second trek and had to come back. Uh, the woman on the team, her feet were in such bad shape and um, I think they were like maybe preparing to drop out and Heidi gave her a pair of her own shoes off her feet, I believe, because yep. they were bigger and they went out and they did it, but they've fallen way back. And um, yeah, so I'm just wondering these teams that are still on that, that second trek, you know, how are they doing? Right. Um, and uh, what are they going to look like by the end of this thing? So I, I don't know how many of these teams are going to get all the way around um, versus yeah. skipping those tracks. I haven't really looked at it too much in the last 24 hours, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to predict. The tracking hasn't been ideal, but um, I would suggest probably less than 20 teams. Um, I don't know how we're looking at the moment, but, yeah, I just haven't had the time to, to really look that closely back in the pack. I was able to keep up to date with the leaders um, during in between other things, but yeah, I haven't really haven't had the time to look further back. There's a team I, as of 25 minutes ago that's still on the paddle. <laughs> yeah, but they haven't updated, right, in a while? Well, they, they updated at 104, and now we're at 129. So oh, that's right. So that's Okay, so that's a long time there. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm, I mean, I'm looking I mean, at, you know, I know – you know, just because of the expedition, Oregon, you know, I know the, uh, some of the people from the, the AXA or AKSA Brazil mm -hmm. the Brazilian team, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're pretty strong racers and, and they're sitting there accurately tracking it at X at CP 76. So they're on the, on the bike before that, um, you know, they, they've still got to do the bike and the track to the finish line. But I, I don't imagine that, that any teams that are kind of not on that last bike, are are gonna be able to finish or or not many more. I just because they only have 
what 170 hours is the final cutoff or was it i don't know what the is this uh, saturday at some yeah. point yeah they have one more they have one more full day of racing i think in front of them yeah, right because paraguay is on the same time zone as the east coast of america so it's night there now i think yes, they're an hour they ahead of us aren't they, they? about 30 36 or maybe 40 hours left of racing i mean that's uh, the real i mean i mean all credit to all credit to avaya and saf you know, th this is not like when they talk about the marathon runners, right? And the marathon runners, when the when the when the strong African runners, when they go and they're done in three hours and change, they say to themselves, "I couldn't imagine being on my feet for five hours." Like they talk about that as how hard. I mean, the amount of time that these teams are going to be out there is just—it's breathtaking when you think about it. And they just—they just keep slugging away. I mean, those are the real. All credit to Avaya and SAF and Brazil, and they deserve every ounce of credit they get. But like you know that some of these teams coming into this race, they knew that they were going to get shelled. They knew that they oh, knew this warriors. was going to be their future. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, can I give a more concrete answer, uh, yeah. Jason? So like, listening to your thoughts on, on uh, access. So I just looked up, um, you know, the TA there at the end of the trek before that final bike, you know, the yeah. teams that have all finished, right? So via through Merrill, um, you know, on average took 20 ish hours to finish the race from there. I think of Avaya was fastest around 15, roughly a couple teams were back toward 30. So, yeah. you know, if they've got, you know, maybe 36 to 40 hours, maybe a little bit longer, depending on what time they're, they're ending on Sunday, that makes me think that really the, the lantern rouge of the full course is actually probably one of the teams that's on maybe the second half of that trek. Uh, that of course requires them to navigate cleanly through that second half, uh, that might even afford them an hour or two of sleep. And then they have to be pretty steady for the rest of the race. Yeah. Um, but I, I would think that one of those teams will be our, will be our final finisher of the full course. Right. So maybe, maybe Seti or, you know, Seti has lots of world championships under the belt and, and Papakara mm -hmm. vitality. They're like ranked. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah, they're probably experienced teams like that. And yeah. the other thing, though, once you get into nights five and six, you know, teams really do need a little bit more sleep, though, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're just shattered. So and I can tell that from experience. So basically, there's another, yeah, Jason. There's another team, um, Pioneers, that we haven't talked about, Pioneers yeah. Vespa, um, that I just happen to know. Uh, one of the guys, it's a Swedish team. It's under the Swedish flag, but one of the guys on that team is Olaf Hedberg, who's mm -hmm. actually used to race with AMK and, and I think got as high as second place or third place in world championships. Yep. Um, you know, and he said, this is a bit, bit more of a, of a tenacity cruise with his Swedish teammates, but, um, him and his wife who are Whitney. Know, yep. Yeah. Whitney. So, you know, those guys definitely have potential to, to pull it out. Um, you know, when I saw that it's, it's, I think it's, it's gotta be a little hard for him and, and also rare, you know, having, having previously been on the podium at world championships, um, and now he's suffering an, an extra few days, but, um, I hope they're having fun. And, and I think that they're committed to finishing based on, you know, talking. interesting, Harry compares it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, you know, like from my experience, you know, and obviously I'm no Avaya, but like we've been spending a lot of time the last five years trying to get more competitive. And I will say a hundred percent that everything is easier when you are reaching your goals, whether that's top 10 or winning or being on the podium, like those teams that reach their goals, like the recovery is easier, like a hundred percent. That's not like, well, maybe it's psychosomatic, but every race that I've won or met my goals, it seems 
like I'm, I got a pep in my step that next day. Right. Whereas when you're shattered, like maybe the Estonians that ended up in fourth when they didn't imagine that possible, like it's, it's pretty harsh. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and so kudos to those teams that stick it out once their, you know, their initial, uh, goals kind of, kind of go and, you know, come and pass. Um, and they kind of have to redefine what it means to be racing. Um, I think that's a, you know, it's a huge part of growing as the sport, growing as an athlete in the sport is, is sometimes sticking it out and, and realizing that, that it really isn't about the, you know, the wins of the podium, but it's about, you know, kind of the deeper stuff that you can learn out there, but man, it's, it's not easy. So, well, know, I mean, we went through that. Hard. I want to echo, echo back to East wind, right? East wind is East wind, right? They're legendary yeah. in the sport. And there's been a change in leadership in that team. And it was, it was, there I say heartbreaking to see them have such a hard time. So early in the race, they ambulance had to bring somebody out, you know, they had a really hard time. And to your point, right on it, you kind of, your heart goes out to these teams that do well. And to your point, when you're, you know, you know, success breeds success. We see that in adventure racing time and time again, and how many teams sort of gain speed and gain steam along the way. And then they have a tough race like this and things really kind of work against them. Um, did any teams out there, and I'm going to come back to you, Craig, on this, because I know that you, you've been watching it in terms of, you know, these teams so, so well. Looking down the road, you mentioned that next year that Merrill Song Lines is going to be the strong team in Africa, right? They're going to be the Brazil of Africa. Anybody else here strike you as an overperformer during this race? I think all all the top ten and actually slightly different crew this time. I mean, Quest uh, absolutely great to see them, Jason, and I, I wasn't surprised. And I actually felt after Oregon that um, the Canada team would have been up a little bit further as well. And they've definitely got a lot of potential there. So it's really is good to see the American teams. Um, coming to the fore there a little bit. I'm just scratching my head a little bit just to think of the other top 10 teams there. But, um, I, yeah, I think Songlines and there will be two or three other, I think, good South African teams next year who on home soil will actually uh, be pushing top 10. So uh, that will certainly mix things up a little bit next year. Um, just trying to think in the top 10 there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it was kind of pretty much as predicted normally is, but the South, South American teams, it was really good to see um, Bossy and Uruguay um, do really well. And it wasn't really a surprise because they are so experienced. And But on home soil, it's great to see them putting in a good performance and a great race. And actually the other team, the South American team, um, might be Keltoid toy or something um they they've done really well and actually i saw the lady was in a video talking to heidi at transition after i think before the second trek um so they'd already done the big trek the kayak the first bike ride and such she looks so fresh she looked great you know and just like um i thought crack has she already been racing two days or has she just stepped out onto the course because uh she looked fantastic and they've, they've raced really well so so yeah I, I think next year looking ahead to next year there'll be the usual candidates, but there are some younger teams starting to come through. I think the other Estonian team might learn from this experience and be better next time. Um, and Nordisk and other teams. And I mean, European, there'll probably be more European teams there next year. So yeah, the, there'll be teams, good teams from Europe that will go down to Africa and, and perform quite well in, in the top 20 mix for sure. Craig, thank you for that. We're getting near the end of our time. There's closing thoughts here. Brent, I'm going to turn to you. Any closing thoughts that we have going into the, the end of the race? It's still going on, right? There's still teams that are out there. there. There's more to talk about. Now that the race is sort of shook out for the podium and for their, you're looking at those top, you know, close to the top 10 teams, any closing thoughts? 
feel like we've covered uh, pretty much all the things that I was watching this past week. Um, you know, I, I think that as we expected, the that opening forty eight to fifty hours was a was a pretty rough start to the race. I think. I think it was it was hard. I mean, I think when you see. Um, when you see a team like Avaya come across the, the finish line and you know they're asked to reflect on the race and they immediately talk about how hard and brutal that trek was, like that tells you something about what everyone else was going through as well, right? Um, when the top teams are remarking on how hard something like that is, you know it's it's for real. Um, yeah. And um, you know, I, I really uh, you know really appreciated Jason's comment from early in our conversation just about like you know the the race director thought process. And, you know, it's not always uh, as conscious as we sometimes think it is in, in, um, in retrospect, I, I sometimes think race directing is a bit like art, right. And, you know, people can sit down and look at a painting and they're like, Oh, well, this is what certainly what the, uh, what the creator intended. And they're like, no, that's not at all. I just did it this way. Cause I felt like it. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, with race directing, sometimes like, it's just, it's what the land gives you. Um, but I also like, don't at all want to suggest that that's what it was. Like, I, I think it ended up being a really fascinating course to, to watch unfold. So kudos to uh, the entire team down there for putting together what's clearly a, a pretty challenging, exciting event. Exactly. Jason, what do you think? Take us out. Um, so yeah, I'm going to little segue. Like I was talking to the guy, uh, the founder of gear junkie, Steven Reginald after nationals. So he, I just raced at nationals. He raced at nationals. Um, and we were having a conversation over ice cream afterwards you know, and about what it would take to, for, for adventure racing to grow, you know, and, and, and kind of get back to its heyday and that kind of thing. And, and he made a comment. Um, and I think his, his place is mostly a, as an American kind of seeing the sport in the U S he said, Hey, what we need in adventure racing is, is more elite athletes, more top athletes. And, you know, and inside I'm like, there aren't, you couldn't put four of the most elite athletes on the planet together right now that would beat Avaya in this race. Right. And, and that's what I love about the world championships. And especially, you know, this is different. We're not talking 24 hour racing. We're talking expedition racing. It's a different beast. And this is such a remarkable sport. And it's so hard. You know, I remember when when my twin brother who's also a longtime expedition racer, wrote wrote an article for some New Zealand magazine about like why the, more people didn't adventure race. And, and the reality is, is because it's hard and because most people fail, like you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail and you have to figure out how to not fail or to how to change your mindset about what failure is because it is so unbelievably hard and there are very very few teams that can do it well and, and then you see even the best teams in the world like in this race fail and fall apart and you know it just brings me back to this idea that expedition racing is is more than a sport yeah sure it's an elite sport it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do you know in your life but it really takes four humans that can do the exceptional and that is not the case in a lot of sports where it's just physical or can I go faster? Can I go longer? You know, it really is an exceptional feat to be able to not only finish one of these races, but to be competitive with a bunch of other people that have decided that this is the best thing that they can do with their time. Um, and it's just remarkable. It's like remarkable to watch when I'm sitting there watching it, you know, even as a 60 expeditions under my belt, I'm like, how are they still going? They should all be miserable. Like, I'm so glad I'm not there. I heard that from so many people watching Expedition Oregon. I'm so glad I'm not there. And then you talk to the teams that did it, and they're just like, I'm so glad I was there. 
right? And, and it's just a crazy thing that the people that are out there going through that, that they don't begrudge any step, any set sense of pain, any, you know, any failure that they walk to that finish line. And they're like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. And when am I going to do it again? Right. Um, and, and to me, that speaks volumes to this community, this sport, um, this life that we've all created for ourselves under the crazy guise of adventure racing. And, you know, it's just like so amazing to see those teams go through that, see those people, those humans go through that. Um, and I'm, I'm just super thankful to be part of it. And, you know, and that, that all of them are surviving and, and doing what they love out there. So I'll tell you this. So last night I had the chance to interview David Webster. David Webster raced in Itera, Scotland as part of team ACDC AR. And they were literally the, the middle of the pack team that finished. What's yeah. fascinating about his interview and, and speaking with him, it was his first adventure race ever. Mm-hmm. It was a five-day at Terra Scotland. And I asked him, like, well, why did you jump into that deep end of the water? Like, why, why did you choose to do this? And he said, because he had watched, he saw Eco Fiji, right? That's gateway yeah. of people. And he talked a lot about how he wanted to test himself. He wanted to see if he could do it or not. And his team did it. Yeah. They did great, right? They were they were a short course team in Itera. And they put all the pieces together. And and he spoke about it as such a transformative experience for himself that he he really wanted to kind of show himself what he was. And the fact that that was his first race, he dove right into the deep end of the pool. You know, Brett, now that I think about it, I do want to wrap up with you. You know, you have an expedition race on the horizon, right? June of 2023, we're bringing back the Endless Mountains for the second second time, right? Inaugural race. There are people listening to this podcast that are, going to, that are going to kick around possibly getting into adventure racing and getting into long form racing. As you look towards the future and you look towards the race that you're putting together along with Abby, I know that you, you designed the courses together. What does this race say to you about what you want to bring to the racer experience going into next year? Yeah. And don't end with me. Make sure you end with Craig. Um, he deserves it. I'm just saying. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's a great question. Um, you know, obviously like racing in Pennsylvania is, is a completely different animal than doing a race like this, totally different, um, ecosystem and climate, um, different maps. I mean, everything's different. Right. Um, and also like, it should be noted, we are, we're not directing a world championship. So while uh, I, I do remind people that it is a world series event, which means it is definitely going to be more challenging than your average kind of regional 72 hour event. Um, it, we really want to make sure that the event is kind of accessible and um, doable by, I won't say anyone because it's not right. Like you have to prepare for a five day race. Like there's no way around that. Right. But um, you know, we really like to try to put together a course that really does kind of suit all levels. Um, And, you know, so I, I think I would just say that, right. You know, and watching this, like it's a little hard to tell what happens, but like also this is a different kind of race, right? Like this is a more traditional, you know, point to point event. It's a world championship event. You know, I don't think it's necessarily supposed to, necessarily um have this like tremendous focus on what happens when you're short course you skip things right when you're short course you do have to kind of move forward on the course so um yeah i mean yeah i did want to also just say though to jason's comment about failure right you know we we unfortunately didn't get to talk about one of our favorite teams much because they they had a really rough race and uh i i would actually like to end my 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 own thoughts with eastwind again right because you know i if if you're not familiar people that are listening if you're not familiar with eastwind do yourself a favor and go back and find yourself, you know, the original eco challenge from Australia. I think it was the 1997 edition and just watch it 
And, you know, that's when East Wind kind of appeared on the international scene. And, you know, there's been some changes in the team over the years. But, um, you know, even though they had a difficult race here, they continue to embody what that team has always embodied. So for those that didn't follow, one of their teammates um, became or maybe even started the race ill. It's not clear to me exactly what happened, but he clearly was quite ill quite early in the event. They had to stop less than 24 hours into the race. They stopped for maybe 24 hours. Uh, essentially, we're at the very back of the pack as a result, um, fell 24 hours behind everybody. They had already fallen way behind because they weren't moving well. Um, they finally were able to evacuate their sick teammate. I think for a lot of teams at that point, like you're already basically 30 hours behind where you wanted to be. Like you're not finishing the race officially. You're not going to be able to finish the full course most likely. Uh, most teams probably get on the bus or the train or the helicopter, whatever they brought in there to get their teammate out and they go home and Eastwind does what they always do. Right. They got up and they kept going. Right. Uh, and that's another big takeaway for me, you know, it's just a reminder, right. Of, of what makes this sport so amazing and what makes a successful adventure racer. Um, their tracker, I think is currently dead. No idea how they're doing at this point, but they, they like got up and they ran through the rest of that first stage. They caught up and passed, I think like 10, 12 teams, um, and had a great time doing it from all accounts. So I just think the spirit of it is there's nowhere better than the world championship to see the spirit of the sport. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. You probably have the most adventure racing knowledge in this whole pack. All of us, you've seen a lot of, a lot of world championships, a lot of thoughts, close us out, take us home. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a great race and it was a great result. And I mean, you can't take anything away from Avaya. They, they are the world's best and, and we'll remain that way for a little while, I guess, but I actually, I want to go back and touch on what the guys just touched on as well about adventure racing in general and the fact that, you know, I was a really bad racer. You know, I've been short course. I've been out there for six, six and a half, seven days and loved every minute of it. And and it might seem like they're battling along and such things, but they're still in the bubble. They're still in the zone. They're still enjoying it. And um, I think the big takeaway for anyone who jumps in the deep end of adventure racing, whether they succeed or not, or reach those goals or not, it's the self-belief you come away with that if you can take this on and survive it, let alone whether you finish it full course, short course, whatever, um, it's the self-belief you get from from taking it on and, and that you can do anything, anything is possible. And, and that's a pretty unique thing to get from a sport and it's a great thing to take into life. 